This is the Green Street News. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of experts with your weekly update on what's going on in the world that can impact your health. Welcome back. On today's show, we'll talk with a remarkable woman who is a mountain climber, a chemist, and a relentless advocate for keeping our environment safe from toxic chemicals. She's an inspiration and a true leader in the environmental movement. That story and Patty with the week's headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. Okay, Patty, so what happened this week in the world of environmental health? All right, there's a lot to talk about. I'm going to start with one written by one of my favorite writers, Brian Benkowski. It was published in Environmental Health News, and the title is Scientists Warn of Disinfectant Dangers. Disinfectants have had a moment since the COVID-19 pandemic began, and scientists are warning that this widespread use is spurring health problems, antimicrobial resistance, and harming the environment. Erica Hartman, a co-author of a new study examining the dangers of disinfectants, said, quote, it's ironic that the chemicals we're deploying in vain for one health crisis are actually fueling another. Hartman and colleagues' new studies published in Environmental Science and Technology examines quaternary ammonium compounds, or quats, which are used in disinfectants and personal care products. They reviewed the existing environmental and human health science on quats, which have been used much more since the pandemic began, and found that the compounds are linked to asthma, dermatitis, inflammation, infertility, birth defects, and other problems. They can also harm aquatic life and cause antimicrobial resistance, which can make drug-resistant viruses and bacteria. Hmm. Quote, antimicrobial resistance was already contributing to millions of deaths per year before the pandemic, but overzealous disinfection, especially with products containing quats, threatened to make it worse. Patty, you're saying quats. Say this. What, what does that stand for again? It, st- it stands for quaternary ammonium compounds. That's a mouthful. Yeah, it it is a mouthful, but it's a very, very common disinfectant. It's used in disinfectants that are used in schools and hospitals and other institutions. And it's just it's kind of an industrial disinfectant. But it is also used, as they said, in personal care, you know, personal care products, eye drops, baby wipes, hair conditioners, fabric softeners, those those other kinds of things that we use every day in our homes. Is that something you'd see on the ingredient list? No, that's the problem. Yeah. If you see the ingredients on labels that end in ammonium chloride, there are probably quats in the product. So that's 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 your hint. That's your hint that the quats are in that product. But going back again, there was a spike of disinfectant use when the COVID-19 pandemic began, increasing exposure and researchers saw an associated spike in quats in people. People are mostly exposed via their skin and breathing quats in, but food and water could be other potential sources of exposure. Certain professions, including housekeepers, food or medical equipment preparation, dental assistants and nurses are more highly exposed. Mm -hmm. Children and teachers may also have elevated exposures. Disinfectant wipes containing quats are often used on children's school desks, hospital exam tables, and in homes where they remain on surfaces and in the air. It makes it a challenge to tease out, you know, how many people are exposed or what the health impacts are. It really does because they don't list them. You know, there's no regulation for listing them. Like, for instance, they do list them when they're contained in pesticides, but paints, 
do not. And there are a lot of quats being used in paints. So it's just tough to know exactly how we're exposed. But as you see, the most important part and the most concerning part of the study was antimicrobial resistance. Yeah. That's a big, big problem. That was a big problem. I heard a lot about that a couple of years ago. Not so much recently, but I assume. Yeah, it's well, still... they're you know they're linking a real uptick you know in this because of uh, because of COVID and because of the use of disinfectants. People went nuts trying to be I know. trying to disinfect. But you know, the, the interesting thing is that the authors of the study recommended not using quaternary containing compounds when the chemicals are totally unnecessary. Yeah. Soap and water usually do the trick. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. What else you got? Here's another article that doesn't look good for the summer, okay, because, okay. Of, the, because of the heat, right? So this was published in the New York Times, written by Brad Plummer, and the title is, Heat Will Likely Soar to Record Levels in the Next Five Years, New Analysis Says. Oh, great. Global temperatures are likely to soar to record highs over the next five years, driven by human-caused warming and a climate pattern known as El Nino, according to forecasters at the World Meteorological Organization. The record for Earth's hottest year was set in 2016, and there is a 98% chance that at least one of the next five years will exceed that, while the average from 2023 to 27 will almost certainly be the warmest for a five-year period ever recorded. Pateri Talas, the Secretary General of the Meteorological Organization, says, quote, This will have far-reaching repercussions for health, food security, water management, and the environment. We need to get prepared. Even small increases in warming can exacerbate the dangers from heat waves, wildfires, drought, and other calamities, scientists say. Elevated global temperatures in 2021 helped fuel a heat wave in the Pacific Northwest that shattered local records and killed yeah. hundreds of people. I remember this. Yeah, I remember this, too. This was just a couple of years ago. Big news. Yeah. El Nino conditions can cause further turmoil by shifting global precipitation patterns. That does not mean that the world will have officially breached the aspirational goal in the Paris Climate Agreement of holding global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. When scientists talk about that temperature goal, they generally mean a longer-term average over, say, two decades in order to root out the influence of natural variability. Many world leaders have insisted on the 1.5-degree limit to keep the risks of climate change to tolerable levels, but nations have delayed so long in making the monumental changes necessary to achieve this goal, such as drastically cutting fossil fuel emissions, that scientists now think the world will probably exceed that threshold around the early 2030s. Global average temperatures have already increased roughly 1.1 degrees Celsius since the 19th century, largely because humans keep burning fossil fuels and pumping heat-trapping gases like carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. It's a problem that we just have not been able to solve. We just can't stop. We're addicted. Yep. The world is addicted to our fossil, fossil fuels, fuels, our yep. cars, yep. everything that we everything that we do and you know, change is hard, especially when you got big companies that are making lots of money from the way things are. Right. So. Right. And my next article is about plastics, and that is part oh of it. Oh, boy. Okay. It's part of it. And the title of this is, Who Said Recycling Was Green? Question mark. <laughs> it makes microplastics by the ton. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This was an article published in Inside Climate News, and it was written by James Bruggers. 
Research out of Scotland suggests that the chopping, shredding, and washing of plastic in recycling facilities may turn as much as 6 to 13% of that incoming waste into microplastics, tiny toxic particles that are an emerging and ubiquitous environmental health concern for the planet and people. A team of four researchers measured and analyzed microplastics in wastewater before and after filters were installed at an anonymous recycling plant in the United Kingdom. If the team's calculations are ultimately found to be representative of the mechanical recycling industry as a whole, the scale of microplastics created during recycling processes would be shocking. Perhaps as much as 400,000 tons per year in the United States alone, or the equivalent of about 29,000 dump trucks of microplastics. The study suggests that rather than helping to solve plastics' contribution to what the United Nations had described as a triple planetary crisis of pollution, climate change, and biodiversity loss, recycling could be exacerbating the problem by creating an even more vexing conundrum. 29,000 dump trucks. That's correct. Of microplastics. Of microplastics. So just understand how many microplastics are, because these are like microscopic pieces. The nanoparticles are... I mean, the nanoplastics are, are just, you can't see them without, without a microscope, right? 29,000 yeah. dump trucks. I love so, people who can make those kinds of amounts because you can, you can, a dump truck is a big truck. Yeah. And when they back up and they dump their stuff, it's a gigantic pile yeah. of stuff. And it's equivalent, the equivalent of 400,000 tons per year. Unbelievable. Okay. Other scientists are finding microplastics in human blood, human placentas, and in virtually all corners of the planet. And the United Nations has warned that chemicals in microplastics are associated with serious health impacts, including changes to human genetics, brain development, and reproduction. The paper was published as United Nations delegates prepared to hold their second meeting to negotiate a potential global plastics treaty later this month in Paris, with one potential outcome being more plastics recycling as the chemical and plastics industry presses governments to keep plastic in the global economy. Plastics researcher Arena Brown, who led the study, said, quote, it seems quite backward to me. With plastic recycling, we have designed and initiated it in order to start protecting our environment. I think this study has shown that we have ended up creating a different, if potentially slightly worse problem. Worse yeah. problem. Yeah. The recycling plant allowed researchers to measure microplastics and wastewater before and after the plant installed filters, which Brown said definitely helped to reduce microplastics. But even with filters, the study found that the mechanical recycling process that produced plastic pellets to make new plastic products could still allow as much as 75 billion particles of microplastics in a cubic meter of the plant's wastewater. In all, they calculated the plant would annually release as much as 3 million pounds of microplastics with filtration and up to 6.5 million pounds without filtration. And this is one of those problems that you can't, you can't go back. No. You can't withdraw all those pieces of plastic from the world. They're going to be in the world pretty much forever. Air, water, soil, which means food. People. Right. We talk. We used to talk about. We plastic. already know that we, we have microplastics in our blood and for sure in lung tissue because we have found it in lung tissue in many studies. But this study measured microplastics down to a size of 1.6 microns, which Brown said was smaller than two other similar studies that the researchers found. Still, she said, with the widespread prevalence of even smaller micro and nanoplastics, smaller than the study's size limit, the researchers believe their findings underestimate the problem. 
and that there are many, many, many particles in sizes smaller than this. We used to talk about plastic people in a different way. Now we're talking seriously about people made out of plastic. That's correct. Lovely. It's it's pretty mind-boggling. What especially a be, world. Especially since, you know, I mean, the plastics industry is thinking that they're going to, they're going to up their plastics production by 40% by 2030. They just can't wait to do it. I mean, it's going to keep them, it's going to keep their industry alive. As the use of fossil fuels for energy goes down, right? They want to substitute something else. Then that substitution is plastic manufacturing. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Patty. Okay, you're welcome. If you're a regular listener to Green Street News, you know that one of the big emerging stories we've been covering for the past couple of years has been the rising concern over a class of chemicals known as PFAS, per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, the forever chemicals. We call it a class because right now we know of about 12,000 different variations of PFAS that exist in the world. Not only do these chemicals have an almost unbreakable chemical bond that makes them unbelievably durable and hard to break down, but when they get into our bodies, it turns out they cause all kinds of trouble. These chemicals are found in products like food packaging and carpets where they're used to repel water, grease, and stains. They're also found in the firefighting foam used on military bases and commercial airports. And of course, they're common in lots of personal care products like waterproof mascara, eyeliner, sunscreen, shampoo, and shaving cream. Today, more than 97% of the people in the United States have PFAS in their bodies, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Two of these chemicals, the ones called PFOA and PFOS, have been shown to increase kidney and testicular cancer. They can also disrupt normal growth patterns by interfering with the endocrine system. Some studies have even demonstrated they can cause immune system suppression, including reduced effectiveness of vaccines in children. Scientists have also discovered unusual clusters of serious medical conditions in communities with water heavily contaminated with PFAS, many of which are near manufacturing facilities and military bases. So, these chemicals are ones which we clearly want to avoid whenever and wherever we can. But what do we do in the meantime? What about the tons of PFAS that are already out in the world, in the water, in the soil, in our food, in our bodies? Who is going to clean up this mess? Tragically, cleaning up the environment is not going to be possible. And I think that is very sad. That's Dr. Arlene Blum, biophysical chemist, author, serious mountaineer who climbed to the top of Denali with a group of four other women, and executive director of the Green Science Policy Institute and a research associate in chemistry at UC Berkeley. Arlene Blum has faced a lot of adversity in her life, but despite it all, she is a persistent optimist. I do think the big picture is very promising. And, uh, you know, PFAS is one of many contaminants, and it is starting to get the attention it so very well deserves. I like to say it's, it's my favorite of our six classes of chemicals of concern because it's so good and so bad. But most of the time it's used, we don't really need it. So I think that 
we need to stop using it in our products unless it's essential. You know, turn off the tap on new PFAS and hopefully the earth will heal to some extent. And I do think uh, it can be filtered out of drinking water. And, you know, the new EPA levels and regulations are actually extraordinarily powerful. You know, the EPA, I think, given all their um, legal and political constraints, is doing a fantastic job and setting uh, these relatively low levels for parts per trillion for the old long-chain C8s. PFOS and PFOA, setting that level of four parts per trillion and requiring public water systems to measure, notify the public and reduce in their water is really powerful. A lot more is happening, I will say, with PFAS than with perhaps other chemicals of concern. And not that there isn't a lot more to do, but you know, what the state of Maine has done is incredible. You know, the small state of Maine by requiring reporting, you know, led to 3M. You know, 3M sent this huge document with all their uses of PFAS, which was extraordinary. And I know the car industry is very busy finding out where all the PFAS are in automobiles, and there's a lot. PFAS is a global problem. The chemicals known as persistent organic pollutants, or POPs, are able to travel huge distances around the planet through air and water, affecting communities far away from the actual source of contamination. They're global bans. You know, the EU wants to ban all unessential use of PFAS on a very short timeline. The Stockholm Convention has added PFOA, and they're working on others. But there are thousands of them, and that's why we have long advocated for the class concept. You have to think about the whole class, and you can't regulate them one at a time. Nonetheless, the fact that the EPA is regulating six commonly used uh, PFAS in drinking water is going to be revolutionary because basically you usually have one of those six in your drinking water if there's a problem. And when, if you regulate for them, you get much better drinking water. So. Um, as I said, I feel optimistic for drinking water. I don't feel as optimistic for our ecosystems. But the important thing is to stop the use of products. And Maine, again, not till 2030, but Little Maine regulated no PFAS in products starting in 2030. And other states are doing the same with shorter timelines. The EU is leading the way with, with a very short timeline. So I, I do feel optimism ab about PFAS. And you know, uh, here in California, we um, have regulations not uh, stopping the use of PFAS in textiles, which is huge, stopping the use of PFAS in cosmetics. Um, there are so many bills, you know, all over. 25 states right now have legislation in progress around regulating PFAS in children's products, cookware, cleaning products, feminine hygiene products, protective clothing for firefighters, ski wax, paints, pesticides, pet products, textiles, cosmetics, and food packaging. So these haven't all passed, but they will eventually. You know, the, the snowball is gathering. So why do we need these chemicals anyway? In many cases, there are much safer ways to accomplish what the PFOS chemicals do. As Dr. Blum mentioned, as PFOS becomes a household word that the public is concerned about, companies are scrambling to find non-PFOS solutions. I think most of the uses actually are unnecessary when you look. You know, you really don't need to coat your carpet in PFOS. Maybe you don't get a white carpet. Maybe you get a 
spotted carpet. But if you say to a mom, do you want a white carpet if it means that your children who crawl on it are going to have cancer-causing toxic chemicals in their bodies for the next few decades, and the chemicals are going to be on the planet forever, she might say she doesn't really need a white carpet. And, and there really are a lot of substitutes. You know, the outdoor industry was incredibly resistant. I think maybe you know that we've had one-day meetings with industries, like we had a one-day meeting with the carpet industry, where they actually decided to stop using PFAS and stopped in two years ahead of regulation. I mean, that's ideal if industries decide to stop ahead of regulation. But the outdoor industry, I started reaching out to them 10 years ago, and they did not want to talk to me. And finally, after California passed legislation saying you can't use PFAS in textiles. Um, we had a great meeting in November with uh, major outdoor companies and they're they're doing it. They need to. And turns out Nike has all kinds of information on alternatives, which they're sharing with the whole outdoor industry, which is great. So they're working collaboratively. So I, you know, I I, I think they recognize if everybody has to get out of PFAS, they're not going to lose some vital performance. And in reality, I I have a great black diamond jacket I got several years ago with no PFAS, and it works just as well. So what are we going to do about all the PFAS chemicals that have already been released into the environment? Is there some biological solution hiding out there? Some enzyme or bacteria that can gobble up the PFAS and give us our planet back the way it was before DuPont and 3M decided that worldwide pollution was just the price we all had to pay so they could make a profit. I am concerned about cleaning up. You know, you read now every other day about some destruction method that's going to solve the PFAS problem. And I don't think that's accurate. These are bench scale methods. They have not been scaled up. And a couple that, that have been scaled up to, to a small extent, it turns out it's very expensive in, in energy to do it. So, you know, I feel so sad for communities. They are getting and they should and will get clean drinking water, but getting their pristine rivers and lakes back where they can fish and swim, I, I don't know. No, but nobody really has come up with anything really promising for really cleaning up the environment that doesn't cost too much. I, I mean, you asked me why PFAS is such a problem. And the reason is the bond between carbon and fluorine is so strong. It, I've heard people say it takes the energy of lightning to break that bond. So that's gonna be expensive <laughs> in energy. And you can do it on your lab desk, but you can't probably do it in your lake. I mean, you know, people talk about biological remediation, but I, I don't think anything, as far as I know, really finds PFAS that delicious, um, that they, you know, they thrive and burn. So there were lots of efforts for biological control with bacteria, but it took very special bacteria under very special conditions. You know, basically you can do it in a lab, but can you do it in the environment? So that's why I think turning off the tap and stopping all unnecessary uses as quickly as possible is really important. As we came to the end of our conversation, we didn't want to let our friend Arlene Blum get away without asking her about the nightmare of East Palestine, Ohio, where a freight train carrying vinyl chloride derailed and emergency workers without EPA authorization decided to initiate a controlled burn of the chemical, resulting in thick black smoke carrying toxic chemicals throughout the surrounding area. 
basically vinyl chloride is used to make PVC, which is a very profitable and widely used plastic. But in the 60s, some studies in Europe showed that mice exposed to vinyl chloride got angiosarcoma of the liver. And this was brought to the attention of the manufacturers who really worried. There were huge conversations, Fuhrer, everyone's upset, we need to stop making it. No, let's just market more better living through chemistry. So they did that for a while. And then somebody did rat studies. Guess what? The rats got angiosarcoma of the liver and the same thing happened and they decided to do more marketing. And so then the workers started getting angiosarcoma of the liver and then they had to do something. The EPA said, you've got to clean up your processes. So workers aren't exposed. They said, oh my God, that'll be too costly. We'll go out of business. American business will crash, no more jobs. And they cleaned it up. So workers stopped getting angiosarcoma of the liver and continued making it. And when you burn vinyl chloride, as you know, you get dioxins and furans, which are very persistent carcinogen toxins. So burning it, when I read that they burned it all, and I know they did it to avoid explosions, but somehow burning it all was such a bad idea because that permanently contaminates the environment. Again, humans will get clean drinking water, but what about their whole environment? Most people would probably agree that turning off the tap is the best way to stop further polluting our planet with toxic substances that we can't easily clean up. Stop the bleeding first, then figure out what to do. But not everyone would agree with that. I will say one thing I'm very concerned about is if we're not using PFAS now in this range of products, should the PFAS producers be increasing their production? And you know, in the Cape Fair region of North Carolina, Camores, who for years, you know, poisoned that whole area, they make a whole witch's brew of PFAS, which really takes reverse osmosis to, to really clean it up. The, the carbon filtration doesn't really get rid of it all. And so now they're trying to permit to make lots more PFAS there. And yesterday, a lawsuit was filed saying environmental justice, you know, these people who've had poisoned water forever, who have a wide range of health problems. So their environment's contaminated, their water maybe is getting better. And now they want to expand the production of PFAS there. And going back to where we started, I think the EPA really are to be commended. Very, very challenging what they've done at setting these relatively low levels for 6PFAS, and that, that's really going to be a game changer. I think awareness is increasing, and uh, that's a really good thing. Dr. Arlene Blum, biophysical chemist, author of the book Breaking Trail about her mountain climbing experiences, and executive director of the Green Science Policy Institute and a research associate in chemistry at UC Berkeley. You can learn more about Dr. Blum and her fantastic science-based work at her many websites, greensciencepolicy.org, sixclasses.org, and my personal favorite, pfascentral.org. That's PFAS, P-F-A-S. Again, greensciencepolicy.org, sixclasses.org, and pfoscentral.org. If you have questions about the show or suggestions for guests or topics, you can contact us through our website, 
GreenStreetNews.org. Just go to the contact tab and let us know what you think. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. Special thanks, of course, to our guest and friend, Dr. Arlene Blum, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our engineer, Josh Lyman, our associate producer, Toby Ziegler, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening. <laughs>